couple weeks ago, Bob Dahl gave me a copy of Decision Magazine, which, as you probably know, is published by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Foundation. And in it, it's the, t- the cover story is Two Visions, Two Americas, 2016 Election Special. And obviously the pictures on the cover are one of Hillary Clinton and the other of, of Donald Trump. Uh, so you open this up, and inside it's broken out over a few pages... But they have, they have one of these accounts whereby they tell you what each, uh, a voter's guide, what each party or individual stands for. And they've got a lot of things here, but uh, here's how they broke it out here. Where they stand on religious liberty, what they said. Clinton suggested that women's abortion rights supersede religious liberty, saying deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs... And structural biases have to be changed. Donald Trump said, Religious freedom is the right of people of faith to freely practice their faith. It is so important. Then on the topic of abortion. Here's one quote that they set forth there. I support Roe versus Wade because I think it is an important statement about the importance of a woman making this most difficult decision. Donald Trump said, I hate the concept of abortion, and since, uh, since being pro-choice, I've very much evolved, and I am very, very proud to say that I am pro-life. On the topic of national security, what they said... We must be prepared to go after terrorists. This is Hillary Clinton, wherever they plot, uh, using all the tools at our disposal. And then Donald Trump says, you have to fight fire with fire. We have to be so strong. We have to fight so viciously and violently because we're dealing with violent people. A voter's guide. Ostensibly designed to lay forth... Here's on one side, here's on another. You got a column here, you got a column here. And as you go through, you find out something about each of the candidates. Lay them out side by side. Here they are. Make your decision about who you're going to follow, who you're going to commit to, who you want to vote for. The voter's guide. Well, after the introduction in the book of Hebrews, the writer to the book of Hebrews indicating that Christ, as we saw last week, that Christ is first in scope, first in essence, and first in accomplishment, the writer writer then sets up, if you will, a side-by-side comparison. See, he's already given us one comparison. He's given us the comparison between how God revealed himself through the prophets in the days of old and how in the latter days revealed himself through Christ. And now, as he gets to the end of that introduction... He throws out another set of comparisons. This time, he is going to lay out, for the, to the end of the chapter, he's going to lay out a side-by-side comparison, if you will, a voter's guide, between Christ and the angels. Now, you might ask, why does he feel the need to write this voter's guide between Christ and the angels? Well, we have a reference in Colossians that maybe gives us a little, a little idea 
in that Paul, in writing to the Colossians, makes it clear that we're not to be worshiping angels. We should not be getting caught up in that. So there maybe was a tendency to that in that day, as well as the study that they have done archaeologically from uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the community that was in Qumran, that there's a, probably a pretty good chance they were somewhat caught up in the worshiping of angels. And they, they see that in, their, uh, in what they have discovered there. So the guess that we make is the writer to the book of Hebrews is, 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 is trying to get people to be clear, all right? When you're going to make a decision, if you're going to get involved in worshiping angels, you're going you're to stay committed to worshiping Christ. Here's what we're looking at. And he's going to lay out a side-by-side comparison. And we're going to look just at the first part of that comparison, And what we're going to see is that Christ is superior to angels by a better name, a better name. So if we can, I'd like to just pick it up because those first four verses, although we've been through them, I just just really love these verses. And they lead us right into where we're going. And it will refresh us as to where we've been. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Now here, notice the comparison begins. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And he just lays that out. That Christ, in this process of inheritance, remember, as we saw of his being first in scope, that he was there at the beginning, in fact, as the creator, and he was going to receive the creation at the end. We also saw, in first, in essence, that he is the one who, within his deity, he is the one who is sustaining, he's carrying creation along. And even then it finishes with that redemptive work, the first in accomplishment. He alone has accomplished our salvation. And when he accomplishes our salvation, he then sits down at the right hand of the Father and awaits an inheritance that is going to be his. And in that inheritance, in because of this work which he has done, because of who he is, within that he is given a name that nobody else has quite in that same way. Now, before we dig into what that is specifically, let's remind ourselves. Scripture places a great significance upon names. Names in particular, when God is going to do something new or something very, very significant. And you know where it has happened. We refer to the father of the nation of Israel as who? How do we refer to him as? Father Abraham. We got a song about Father Abraham had seven sons, okay? All right? So we got a song about Father Abraham, but is that where the story began? No. If we know our Bibles, we understand that he began as Abram. And we refer to his wife, Abraham's wife, as Sarah. But if we know our Bibles, we understand that she began as Sarai. And that in Genesis chapter 17, when God was entering into this covenant with them, He's going to do this magnificent thing with them, and he says, now I'm going to change your name. 
When God wants to do something significant, sometimes he changes a name. We know another place, Genesis chapter 32, where we see the same thing unfold. And uh, I am actually going to read this. And it won't come up on the screen. It's just for your listening pleasure. This is good. Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 22, we have this young man by the name of Jacob. Jacob is fleeing from his father-in-law. He had to get skied out a lot of there because his father-in-law was cheating him. He's going, he's going to encounter his brother, who the last time he saw him, he ran from him because he thought his brother was probably going to murder him. And so now he's coming back and he's in a tough place. And we read in verse 22, he arose that night, he's in transit, and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent, uh, sent them over the brook and sent, them, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. He said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Did you catch that whole account about names? God is now going to use Jacob. And these sons that we just read about, they are going to become the nation of Israel. We've got the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now it's like it's just going to bloom into all of these tribes effectively. And Jacob is going to take on this whole new dimension. And how does it, where does it start? He asks for a blessing. And how does, how does he get, what, what blessing does he get? A new name. Now you and I might go, dude, you know a Mercedes would have been a whole lot better. But that's because we don't grasp the significance from their account of what a name meant. And when God is going to do something significant, he changes a name. And in Ephesians, or rather, excuse me, rather, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. We're, we're aware of that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. We're told that he became a servant and uh, that ultimately at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Huh. Significant, isn't it? Jesus, as the servant, is going to have those who bow down to him. But another passage that I want to read, so we get the concept of of names. Now I saw heaven open. This is Revelation chapter 19. If you choose to turn in a Bible there again, it won't come up. It's fine to just listen. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and was righteous. Uh, and in righteousness, he judge, in, in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name, a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What's the name of this one who comes? What's his name? Do you see how many different names he comes with? He came with the name of faithful, the name of true, a name which nobody knew except himself, so it's not revealed to us. He comes with the name of the Word of God, and he comes as the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And in order to express the magnificence of who he is and what is about to unfold and how unstoppable and how absolutely dominant Christ's return is going to be, he's given this multiplicity of six names to impress upon us. Because... To the Bible writers, and to that day, a name was significant. Again, we might be wrestling with that, going, I I don't get it. I, I don't get, is it really all that significant? Can I remind us, and I do this gently, I do not have, and some of you are going to question my ulterior motives. I know you will. I know it. I'm sorry, but it happens. But can I remind us that when we try to generate a discussion about changing the name of our church, it was like, whoa, whoa. And I found myself going, what happened? I thought we were going to have a discussion. All we had was a reaction over one thing, the possibility of changing a name. That was it. And we're like, like, what just went on here? So maybe that helps us. I say that only because it maybe helps us understand. If we're not following that this whole issue of a better name is significant, think about how much significance we thought was involved in in this discussion. And that, uh, oh, change the name of the church? God never changes the name of anything. Oh, I'm sorry, that was just a little tweak there because we saw about Abraham and Sarah and that stuff. Okay. But maybe as we remember what we felt with that, that's my point, what we felt about that issue is what we need to grasp when we understand the writer to the Hebrews says he had a better name than the angels. That's what I'm trying to get at, to get us to connect perhaps emotionally with that and understand what he's getting at. And then the writer goes on to say, very simply, for who, to who, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The name that he has given is the name of God's Son. Now, uniquely so, we have to understand that it's in a unique way. Because you can reference us as the sons of God, and the angels are referenced as the sons of God corporately. But in that particular relationship of being the son, 
the second person of the Trinity. That individual of the Trinity, that personage of the Trinity who chose to be yielded to the one who is designated as Father within the Trinity and yield himself to the Father. And in that context, as he's gone about doing that which he was to do, he gains within his inheritance, he gains this declaration from God in his obedience in the things which he has done, he gains this name of Son. Psalm chapter 2 is where the first reference comes from, as we see in verse 5. In Psalm chapter 2, we read this. It's a, it's a, uh, a, a song of Messiah's, a psalm of Messiah's triumph, if you will, and it is clearly a scripture about Christ. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Kind of got the same tenor, the same tone, the same idea of Christ's going to come and return as King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he does, it's going to be incredible. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nation's for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That's exactly what Hebrews is talking about. That Christ will receive this inheritance when all is said and done, when this whole consummation of things are done, guess who's going to be exalted? The one whom we as humankind have rejected completely. And we are going to find whether, whether willingly, because as believers we fall down and praise him, or whether by force, because those who shook their hands against the heavens and said, God, I will never, ever bow my knee to you. Yes, they will. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and everyone, everyone will fall in abject worship of him. Whether willingly or forced, they, there will be no resistance to this. And the nations here are described as somehow they think they can get the upper hand on God. God says, Sorry. I got something else planned here, and it involves my son. And the writer to the book of Hebrews says, who else has he given this relationship title to of being son? Son, the second person within the Trinity. Son, the one who is to receive, uniquely receive this inheritance because of the work that God is doing in time, space, history. The writer to the book of Hebrews says, what angel ever had that? No angel ever received that name depicting that relationship. And the second, the second passage that he quotes from is from 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have this, this covenant being established with David. And uh, as it's being established, a very significant passage 
in the scriptures. You, we, if we're understanding the scriptures, we, we know at least a little bit about what Second Samuel chapter 7 has to say. We're at that part where David offered to make a house for God, meaning a physical structure. And God says to David, no, I will make a house for you. And the house that he's going to make for David is he is establishing David's lineage now. David's descendants now will be the, the ones you watch to see who the promised Messiah will come from. And in just a couple months, we're going to have Christmas. And we're going to read about them going down to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. Why? Because they've, they were of the house and lineage of David. And that's where they needed to go to report for the census. So from here on, we're watching within David's lineage as to who is this coming Messiah. And he says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And the writer to the book of Hebrews says, what angel was ever given that privilege? What angel was ever given that, that, that honor? There's no angel that has ever received that being named as God's son in this unique way. And so... We set up, he sets up, begins by setting up this side-by-side comparison. His own, if you will, voter's guide. Because quite honestly, people, the writer to the book of Hebrews is trying to get us to cast a vote. We will see that repeatedly throughout the book. He wants us to make a decision. And he's not using, you know, appropriate language so that somehow legally he can come across, you know, voters' guides can only say so much and, and legally the government controls all of that. He's not looking to, to make it sound real uh, correct so it fits something that, that it, uh, we can maintain, you know, a, a tax-free structure. No, he's absolutely pushing. He's pushing to one side, say, here's where we need to fall in our vote. This voter's guide is designed to make us, uh, to inform us on a vote, and then he's going to ask us to vote when we get to chapter 2 and repeatedly throughout the book. Christ is lifted higher and higher throughout this chapter, and we'll see more of it as we dig in next week. Angels aren't lifted higher, and humans aren't lifted higher. Christ is lifted higher and higher and higher. And the writer is whittling away at anything that we might substitute and say, well, you know, this is pretty cool too. And the writer throughout the book of Hebrews is going to cut it all out and say, sorry, by the time we're done, there's only one place we look. There's only one point of focus. There's only one individual that we ought to be considering, and that is Jesus Christ alone. And here he begins by saying he has a, we whittle away the angelic realm. We don't get caught up in worshiping of angels we don't get caught up in somehow thinking that uh, we've got we to absolutely um, look to have you know, the, the little angel on our shoulder. And, and it, no, that's not where we go. We look to Jesus Christ. Now, he may use angels, as we will see. He may use angels, but that's not who we worship. That's not who we fall down before. He alone and he only is our hope. He alone and he only is our hope. And the writer to Hebrews is pushing us in that direction. Now, friends, sometimes we can, get, we can get a little sidetracked on the things that matter. Eight years ago, eight years ago, when I had the privilege of being on sabbatical, a campaign was going on then. And... Um, 
Barack Obama had not yet gotten the nomination from, uh, from the DNC when I was there. And he was still wrestling to get it from uh, Hillary Clinton at this time. And uh, I had a chance to go hear him speak. And I did. And I would have gone to hear anybody speak who was running for president because if I've got a chance to hear him, I want to hear what they have to say. And uh, literally, and I've told you this, literally that's about from here to Tim Panic away from him as he spoke. So it was an interesting experience to watch that. Uh, but at the outset, as I'm walking in and they're starting things, the preliminary things are getting going. As I'm walking in, they have a guy come up and he's some kind of preacher for some church somewhere. And he's there to open this meeting in prayer. I'm like, dude, they're praying. I, I respect that. And so he begins out with this a prayer that I can be identified with. By the time he's done, this whole thing is a shouting glory to Barack Obama. And I'm like, brother, you lost me here. This is a prayer. And you are proclaiming the greatness of Barack Obama. We got sidetracked. (laughs) Something got off track here where we begin thinking our faith is in the Lord. We got to be trusting the Lord. And by the time we're done... Barack Obama is the end all. We can get sidetracked on a lot of things, friends. We can. And messages in this context, I think, okay, what, what is it that we, that we need to do? I think there's two things that we, we need to accomplish, depending on where we're at. One thing each, depending on where we're at. If we're believers, we need to let this truth refresh us. If we're getting sidetracked on what we think our hope is in, if we're getting sidetracked on the things we think that matter, if we're getting sidetracked on giving our allegiance to something other than him, it's time to refresh ourselves and say, look at even the angels don't have a name better than his name. So we refresh ourselves with this truth and we get refocused. The other thing is some of us maybe need this to reveal to us. Maybe we have never come to that place. Well, we recognize that Christ is this unique personage in all of history, this unique being in that he is fully God, fully human, that he is the second person of the Trinity, incarnate in human flesh, took on the form of a servant. We've never come to realize the magnificence of who he is. And today's the day that we need to say, Lord, it's starting to sink in. <laughs> and I need to be focused on you and I need you. And we will call out to him. We say, Lord, I place my faith in you as my only hope. I place my faith in you as the Messiah, as you as the Redeemer, as you as the one who is the Son of God and who alone can save me. Some of us maybe need the revelation of who Christ is, but whether it's refreshment or whether it's revelation, I hope we're seeing it's all about Christ. And our focus needs to be there. Father, thank you. The magnificence of your son. The unique relationship of this one who came as a servant and as we will see, lowered himself below the angels though he was your son superior to the angels. Amazing, Father, amazing. May he be exalted in our thinking, in our minds and may our allegiance be turned to him once again, Lord, because the things of this past week may very well have sidetracked us. And may may we once again affirm that he is the one whom we will follow and our allegiance is to him. And if we have never made that 
decision, Lord. I pray that today you will prompt someone who needs to say, Lord Jesus, you alone are the Son of God. You are superior to the angels and you are my only hope and I place my faith in you and ask you to do a transforming work in me. May we all leave with our, with our focus properly settled in Christ. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.